That's the sound of a Lebanese soldier firing his M16 assault rifle at a low-flying Israeli drone. The incident is the first known time that the Lebanese army has opened fire on Israeli surveillance aircraft. The reason why? Because over the weekend of August 24th, Israel escalated its decades-long war with Hezbollah, and the situation in Lebanon is tense. On Saturday evening, they killed two Hezbollah fighters as they were planning a drone attack from Syria. Then on Sunday, two drones crashed in Beirut. One exploded, damaging a Hezbollah media center. Hezbollah and Lebanese officials quickly pointed the finger at Israel, even though there was no direct confirmation from Tel Aviv. In the days since the incident, Israeli sources have been briefing that they did indeed carry out the operation, and its aim was to prevent sophisticated missile components being handed from Iran to Hezbollah. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're asking if Israel is stepping up its campaign against Iran, and will it spark a war with Hezbollah? Just hours after Hezbollah Secretary General Syed Hassan Nasrallah gave a thundering speech warning of retaliation, Israel is believed to have carried out airstrikes against one of the party's allies in the eastern Lebanese mountains. While the two sides have been locked in a tit-for-tat battle since Hezbollah formed in the 1980s, and they have a long-established understanding of their limits, this represents an escalation. The last time the two sides fought was the 34-day 2006 war. While the situation this week appears to be spiralling, it's worth keeping in mind that since the 2006 war ended, people have been asking what would spark the next conflict. And yet, South Lebanon has experienced 13 years of peace and stability, about the longest period of calm since before the start of the country's own civil war in 1975. Since Hezbollah and Iran intervened in Syria to back the regime of Bashar al-Assad after the start of the country's civil war in 2011, Israel has conducted hundreds of airstrikes. Mostly, they say they're targeting units planning attacks against Israel, or the transfer of sophisticated weapons from Iran to Hezbollah. This weekend's escalation wasn't just an action against Hezbollah and its Palestinian ally in eastern Lebanon. Around the same time, drone strikes killed several Shiite militiamen in Iraq. Local politicians also blamed Tel Aviv. So in a matter of days, Israel hit targets belonging to Iranian proxy groups in three separate countries. It was clearly a provocation, and now everyone's asking, what's Hezbollah going to do? First, we'll hear briefly from Suniva Rose, the National's Beirut correspondent, and Joseph Habush, the national editor of the Daily Star, Lebanon's only English-language newspaper. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute. They'll give us an idea of how things are feeling in Beirut, and what the view from the ground is. Then we'll be joined in the studio by Jack Moore, the National's Deputy Foreign Editor. He leads a lot of the National's coverage of the Israel-Palestine conflict. We'll chat through why this is all happening now, and how things are being seen. Sneva says that Nasrallah is finding himself in a bit of a tight corner, and it's likely that he'll have to act. He even said it in a July speech as well, I mean, that Hezbollah would retaliate if any of its men in Syria were killed. He's threatened it several times. Um, It's just basically Hezbollah is in a tight situation because if they really do retaliate, as he says, then it's possible they'll be reaching a war. But for the moment, he seems to to prefer being cautious and waiting. But the problem is that he's going to lose face after a while because he keeps saying he'll retaliate and then he doesn't. But interestingly, the Beirut incident is not being seen as just an attack on Hezbollah. It's being described by many as an attack on Lebanon. That's one of the reasons that the Lebanese soldier you heard at the beginning was ordered to open fire on surveillance aircraft near the southern border. 
But in doing so, she says he's likely to have the backing of a lot of the Lebanese population. I think this nearly bolsters Hezbollah's position in Lebanon because they were attacked in the heart of their stronghold in South Beirut. It was a civilian area and that Israel was really the troublemaker here. So now we haven't seen much criticism of Hezbollah, just some Lebanese officials who are from parties that are against Hezbollah called the Lebanese to unite around the Lebanese state. I mean, they, they didn't explicitly say that they shouldn't rally against, uh, around Hezbollah. But we haven't um, heard much criticism, apart from one or two political figures that are known to be very anti-Hezbollah, but nobody's really criticized them. We're just all waiting and to see the fact that even the president said that it was a declaration of war against Lebanon really shows that I think if Hezbollah manages to retaliate without causing a regional war, it would be nearly like expected. Joseph points out that Israeli jets and drones entering Lebanese airspace isn't itself new. There's a daily recon flights and drones flying into Lebanon from, from Israel. And uh, I mean, Lebanon doesn't do anything about it militarily and neither does uh, Hezbollah. But the drones on Sunday came within uh, stone, you know, stone throw where residents were pelting it with rocks. So it had to have been within a, a close, uh, it had to be... It had to been pretty close to the buildings. And this is what Nasrallah said was uh, different than the previous, you know, drones that were flying in and out of Lebanon. And the second one, obviously, the second drone, which we don't know if it was sent in to destroy the first drone or if it was sent in to target the, the Hezbollah media center, which uh, obviously was severely damaged. He also says the response from Hezbollah is likely to fall into this long-established pattern. Looking at you know, their past is probably going to be a calculated response where you might see sniper fire along the Lebanese border with Israel where an Israeli soldier is killed or one of their Humvees or trucks is targeted along the, uh, along the border or the blue line. That's one of the, for one, retaliation. For the second retaliation that Masallah says is going to be carried out, I think we can see maybe expecting... Uh, you know, similar drone, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a drone attack or drones into Israeli uh, territories. And we'll see if they target a specific location or something else of that nature. But there's going to be a response and I think it's going to be limited. Um, But here you go into the risk of miscalculation on both ends. A bit later, we'll talk more about these rules of engagement, how they were formed and what they look like. I'm now joined in the studio by Jack Moore, the National's Deputy Foreign Editor. We'll discuss these developments and how it fits into the regional situation and talk about what might be to come. So thanks for joining us, Jack. Let's start with a bit of background. Over the last couple of years, we've seen dozens of airstrikes uh, against Hezbollah targets and Iranian targets in Syria. What do you think is different about the latest incidents over the weekend? So what's different now is that these strikes are taking place in Iraq and Lebanon, and it's because Israel is increasingly concerned about Iran's entrenchment across the Middle East, particularly in Iraq as its power grows there and the US's influence in the country wanes. So there's definitely a more aggressive line being taken by Israel because of what it sees as increased Iranian efforts at building what is known as the Shiite Crescent across the Middle East. Neither side appears to want war, but the potential for miscalculation and a greater regional escalation is very real at the moment, um, with this shadow war effectively being fought now on four fronts. Gaza, 
with Islamic Jihad backed by Iran firing rockets into southern Israel, the strikes in Iraq, the drone strike in southern Beirut and Syria, as has been happening, as you say, for years. So because of the wide area where Israel is now focused its attention on Iranian efforts and the heightened frequency of these attacks, there's really a potential for heightened conflict. Yeah, so Hassan Nasrallah obviously gave a speech on Sunday basically saying that this was the first time that Israel has struck against the group in Lebanon since the 2006 war. And so that obviously is going to be a game changer for them. They're going to see this as very different to some of the strikes that have been taking place in Syria because for them, Lebanon is their their home, their country. They're going to defend it. And a lot of their narrative is built around they are the defense of Lebanon. So they're going to feel that they need to respond to this in a way that they maybe haven't in Syria. But, you know, this is something that's that's been happening in many ways for, for decades between um, Israel and, and Hezbollah. And they've kind of got these unwritten kind of unvocalized rules of engagement where, you know, there are certain things that they have to respond to, certain things they don't. And there's kind of a sort of format for how they respond. So I think the most interesting thing here would be the kind of response we see and whether or not that fits in with what we've seen in the past and whether or not Israel is changing where it sees its red lines to respond differently to those um, to those attacks. So the view in Israel is that even though it has taken a more aggressive line against Iranian proxies in the Middle East, every action it has taken is defensive on every front. So in Gaza, when rockets are fired into southern Israel, it's cutting fuel. In Iraq, when Iranian-backed Shiite militias are receiving arms from Iran, it's acting against them to stop the transfer of arms that could harm Israel. In Lebanon, in striking in southern Beirut, it was to stop a crucial component of Hezbollah's missile technology that could improve the performance of its arsenal. And in Syria, as it has done since 2012, it's to stop Iranian proxies and the IRGC from being able to station itself in southern Israel and attack Israeli territory. So Israelis would argue that on every front, they're acting defensively rather than offensively. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing about Hezbollah is that since 2011, you know, there's been a lot of focus for them in Syria where they've been deploying a huge amount of fighters, of resources, of money to support Bashar al-Assad and to prevent the fall of his government because he's also a major conduit and, and backer of the group. But, you know, part of the kind of Hezbollah's core ideology is that it is the tip of the spear of resistance against Israel. And therefore, even throughout the Syrian war, a lot of what they've done has been about building up more bases, building up more capability across Lebanon and Syria, so that when the next war with Israel comes, they're better prepared and it's more regional. It's still looking to build up that resource. And so it will see these attacks as against it and it will be responding defensively as well. So it's kind of interesting that we've got both sides kind of acting defensively in this case. But it could very easily spiral into a war. I mean, we saw in, in 2006, we saw uh, a cross-border raid that led to the kidnapping of, of Israeli soldiers and, and the deaths of others, leading to a full ground invasion and, and a full assault, which um, Hassan Nasrallah has said since, if he realized that that was going to be the repercussion, he wouldn't have ordered that specific raid. So, so even though they've got this kind of unwritten rules of engagement, it can go wrong. And how does Israel's action in southern Beirut on Saturday change things? The very fact that they decided to, to you know, if it is indeed these um, Israeli drones, that they decided to fly them into Beirut, into the heart of Hezbollah's kind of core um, you know, support base. 
they have a lot of support in the south and in the Bekaa Valley, but their urban supporters are really centered around these southern suburbs of Beirut in, in an area called Dahir. And so this is where you see the big rallies. It's where a lot of um, the big funerals take place. The fact that these drones were flying around there is going to be a huge kind of slight to Hezbollah because the idea is if you can't even protect your urban center, then you can't protect the country. That's going to feed into their need to respond. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Nasrallah and, and other officials have come out saying that there is going to be a response, just wait. Usually he's a lot more kind of hedged. He says, you know, we will respond at a time and place of our choosing when the, you know, when the opportunity arises. Now he's kind of saying, watch out, it's coming. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. And I think, you know, we can get an idea of what that might look like by going back. So the last time that we had a kind of big flare up like this um, was in in uh, January 2015, when Israeli airstrikes killed several Hezbollah um, fighters, including some high ranking members, and also an IRGC general. Um, and that was in Kanaitra in Syria. Hezbollah's response to that was to ambush an Israeli military convoy in the Sheba Farms, which is an area on the border which they say is Lebanese but is occupied by Israel. So in the ambush, two Israeli soldiers were killed. Um, Israel responded by firing back into South Lebanon and the shells killed uh, a Spanish Unifil soldier. But what was interesting was things simmered down quite quickly after that. So that was kind of a tense moment, but it then dissipated relatively quickly. Almost a year later, in December 2015, um, Israel carried out a strike against Samir Kunta, who's a high-profile Druze Hezbollah commander. He'd been convicted in Israel before of the brutal murder of a police officer and an Israeli family, but was released in 2003 um, as part of a prisoner exchange. So um, when Kunta was killed again in Syria, Hezbollah responded with um, a non-fatal strike against uh, an Israeli military patrol vehicle, again in the Sheba Farms border area. So again, it's kind of interesting that, you know, in these, these two instances were high profile, um, and therefore they needed to respond. But both times it was in the Sheba Farms area, which is this disputed, this disputed area. Um, and both times it was relatively limited, and didn't provoke a huge Israeli response to that. And similarly, in Israel, the concern about sovereignty is just as strong. In the Golan Heights, you know, Israel occupied the Golan from Syria, but they see it as part of Israel. So Iran and Hezbollah building up on the border with the Golan Heights, firing into Mount Hermon in the Golan is seen as a violation of Israeli sovereignty. So we will see Israel, I think, continue to ratchet up its actions against Iran in these different areas to protect its territory and its, its sovereignty. And it's likely no coincidence that this is happening at a time when the US administration is increasingly pro-Israel and increasingly positioned against Iran and its proxies in the Middle East, that it can go into Beirut, that it can strike in Iraq. It likely hasn't done that without consent from Washington. So I think that's, that's a very interesting part of this story is the US involvement. As well as there being this international um, situation that might be enabling uh, Israel to take a more aggressive stance towards um, Hezbollah and Iranian proxies, What's the domestic angle for Israel as well to this? So while I don't think that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has taken this action purely because of the election in three weeks, things have converged to a point where he has had to act after Washington pulled out of the nuclear deal that he lobbied so hard for them to leave. Since that happened, Iran has been emboldened to act because it's been damaged economically. So by it becoming emboldened, it has threatened Israel's security more and more. But the frequency of Israel's action says to me that with the election on the horizon, it's a consideration for him. Because we know that he's the master of strategy. He's the ultimate political survivor in Israel. 
he uses the security angle to play to his strengths. In December, for example, when police recommended that he be indicted for corruption, he announced a major operation against Hezbollah's tunnel network in northern Israel to deflect from that news. In January, when the election was called for April, he announced publicly that Israel was operating against Iranian targets in Syria. And that's rare because usually Israel keeps those operations very secret to maintain its deterrence and its surprise. But after April, when he failed to form that coalition, we have now have this unprecedented repeat election in the same year. So with that just three weeks away, he needs to project uh, an image of strength. And by being public about Israel's actions in, in Syria and hinting that they're operating elsewhere, they still haven't admitted that they commi committed the strikes in Iraq and carried out the drone strike in southern Lebanon. We can read between the lines. The majority of the Israeli establishment agrees with his moves on this. He knows it's popular. He knows it goes down well. He's protecting Israeli lives. But what they disagree on is how public he's being about this. They think it's brazen of him to be given away all of Israel's secrets, a country that's long kept its cards close to its chest. The problem that he faces is that he miscalculates. So on four fronts, he's protecting Israel, but if Israel oversteps the line or provokes one of these four actors into a greater action, he finds himself in a war. He's then the guy who drags Israel and Israelis into danger, not the guy who protects them. I think what we're seeing is very cautious and calculated action by Israel that makes them look strong, but doesn't cross into uh, open conflict. And I think we can see that from his rhetoric where he told Nasrallah to calm down. He told Soleimani to watch what you do. He's put the, bo the ball back in their court and said, go on, what are you going to do next? So it's up to them now. Do they escalate matters or are they going to carry on with bellicose rhetoric without much action to back it up? Yeah, and I think even though a Hezbollah response at this point might give Netanyahu a boost in the polls because it shows the need for a strong leadership. There's, to an extent, a feeling, I think, in Hezbollah that Netanyahu's actually not a bad person to be up against because they know what they're dealing with. They've had him in power. They've had him as an adversary yeah. for, for years now, whereas a new administration could bring new dynamics. It could be more aggressive. It could be more unpredictable. And I think that that also extends the other way. I think it's the reason that even after um, Israel has gone after lots of senior Hezbollah figures, they, as far as we know, haven't tried to assassinate Hassan Nasrallah because, again, within his worldview, he's a relatively rational actor and you can work out what he's going to do and you can you can see how he's going to take things. Whereas if he were to be assassinated or, or removed from power, anybody could take over as the leader of Hezbollah and that could completely change the situation. So I think it's kind of this interesting thing where where both sides might actually play into boosting the support of the other, but actually that's not a bad thing for either. I think in terms of a possible response from Hezbollah to these latest strikes before the election, I think if you go back again to the 2015 instance, it was sort of 10 days, two weeks between Israel's initial action and Hezbollah's response. So it tries to do this thing where it's not a knee jerk, you know, next day within 24 hours. And and usually the way that Hezbollah operates would it would have an order from the top that would go down to a local commander who's then able to pick the time and place to carry out the response. So I think it's likely that we'll see it, you know, in the next 10 days, if one is coming. Um, it could be sooner, it could be longer. It often depends on the local situation. How do you think a possible response will impact the voting in Israel? So I think a possible response and the Israeli reaction to that response depends on where that comes from. So before April's election, rockets were fired at an intense level from Gaza into southern Israel. And Netanyahu was under a lot of pressure to respond. And he came under a lot of criticism for not 
launching a military operation against Gaza. Instead, he restricted entry of goods into the enclave, fuel shipments into the territory. With Hezbollah, he can't do that. They don't have control over Hezbollah. They don't have control over Lebanon like they do with Gaza. So if a Hezbollah response does arrive, it's going to have to be, again, a calculated military response, which could threaten an escalation into a new conflict. And if he, they don't do that, then he looks weak. So he's going to be pushed into some form of military response to look strong. And the level of that response is going to dictate what happens going ahead. So it'd be very interesting to see what Hezbollah responds with and the level that Netanyahu thinks he can retaliate with because of the considerations with the vote. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that because they don't have any other channels to exert pressure on Hezbollah other than the military response, unlike in Gaza where they can you know, restrict, as you said, access to goods and things, they can get other responses. But I think this is the other thing about Hezbollah is that we'll have to watch for in this response. Usually they try and, as I said, hit like for like. So if you hit Hezbollah fighters, they'll hit Israeli soldiers. If you bomb a town, they'll try and hit settlements. And I think this is kind of going to be the interesting thing is, okay, the drones that came into Beirut might have damaged a Hezbollah media center, but for them, it was an incredibly dense civilian center that, that was essentially targeted. So will they feel the need to respond in kind by either firing or launching drones of their own or an incursion towards, again, population centers. And this would obviously massively change the Israeli response if Hezbollah attacked Israeli citizens rather than Israeli troops. I think that their response would presumably be quite different. And Hezbollah's arsenal, how far can it reach? I mean, Israel brags quite a lot. He says, if you shut down Beirut airport, we'll shut down Ben Gurion airport. If yeah. you hit Beirut, we'll hit Tel Aviv. You know, he says that their rocket arsenal can reach the entire country. That's definitely taken seriously in Israel. They've moved strategic sites. There was an ammonia storage site in Haifa that they've they've looking at relocating because he's often threatened it, saying that if we hit that with a, a missile, we could turn it into a giant nuclear bomb in a in a city. So why do you think it would be so hard for Israel to defeat Hezbollah militarily? Yeah, I mean, I think Hezbollah has the same thing that a lot of insurgent forces have. You know, this is why America struggled so much in Iraq and in Afghanistan is because the metrics of winning and losing for Hezbollah are very different from that of Israel. Like Israel went in in 2006 talking about degrading Hezbollah's capabilities, you know, removing its missile arsenal, of uh, making it no longer a threat. You know, that's quite a big task. Hezbollah's goals in that whole conflict were simply to continue firing missiles, to continue being a threat, to keep Al-Manar, their TV station, on the air. It allowed uh, Nasrallah to go on TV every night as this kind of narrator of the conflict. He got to frame the whole war every evening on TV. And, you know, hugely dramatic pieces. People in Lebanon remember these specific sections of that war from how Nasrallah was talking about it. You know, so it was this incredibly symbolic moment. And then, you know, there was also this aspect of people refusing to leave their homes in the southern suburbs, even though they were getting pounded by Israeli airstrikes. So a lot of that came from how Nasrallah was, was framing the conflict. All he had to do was to continue appearing on TV and continuing firing rockets for him to have then been able to declare victory. Israel was facing a much more difficult challenge in destroying what is an incredibly entrenched and in some sections of the Lebanese population, incredibly popular organization. Thanks this week to Sneva Rose and Joseph Habouche in Beirut and to Jack Moore in the studio in Abu Dhabi. 
To hear more, tap the subscribe button in your podcast app to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines. And check out more of our coverage at thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Isha Khan and Arthur Edison with assistance from Hannah Finity. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young.